following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of August 31st, 2020. On this week's show, we're going to discuss the fallout from the NBA's wildcat strike last week in pro basketball and the entire sports world. We'll also talk about the death of John Thompson, the legendary Georgetown basketball coach who turned that program into an unapologetically black powerhouse. And finally, the Athletics' Lindsey Jones will be here to assess what should be done about the Washington football team after yet another report about the franchise's culture of sexual harassment, with this one implicating owner Dan Snyder. I'm the author of The Queen, the host of Slow Burn Season 4. I'm here in Washington, D.C. Stefan Fatsis is off this week, but joining me as always from beautiful Palo Alto, Slate staff writer, the host of Slow Burn 3, Mr. Joel Anderson. What's up, Joel? Beautiful and smoky Palo Alto, by the way. <laughs> How are you doing with the smoke? Well, I mean, we have to close our windows most days, and it's dangerous to go outside and do physical activity. But other than that, it's fine. <laughs> well, thank you for telling us the truth and not uh, sugarcoating it. Everything's great. <laughs> All right. Beautiful. <laughs> Filling in this week, one of our favorite guests, New Yorker staff writer, theater critic, Vincent Cunningham. Thanks for being here, Vincent. Hey. How's the air quality for you? Slightly better, less than wildfire grade, but you know, I'm doing all right. I went on a jog today that did not hurt me. Oh, well, see, I mean, that's paradise as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. As recently as five days ago, it seemed as if the NBA was done for 2020. The Milwaukee Bucks left the court minutes before Game 5 of their first-round playoff series against the Orlando Magic, triggering a league-wide strike. In the 24 hours after the Bucks' walk-off, the NBA and much of the sports world came to a stop. And reports emerged that the Lakers and the Clippers, two of the league's three title favorites, along with Milwaukee, were ready to leave the bubble for good. As you know, that didn't happen. President Obama called at the behest of LeBron James, reportedly advised the players to leverage their platform to get some guarantees from the owners before returning to the floor. And now they have returned, with the owners promising, among other things, that they'll work with local officials to turn their arenas into voting locations for the November election. Vincent, you wrote Wednesday in The New Yorker that NBA players seemed to recognize that the most powerful thing they could do was not to work, and that the most astounding use of their platform was to step off of it. So now that the strike is over, how did it feel to see them step back on their platforms this weekend? You know, it was a strange kind of mixed thing for me. I mean, first of all, as I wrote in in that piece, I just like watching basketball. And the part of me that likes watching basketball has no ethics, right? There's no politics in that part of my life. So I was watching Jamal Murray last night and just grateful that I could do that, right? So there's always that. Um, Then there's the part of me that was raised, one of my mom's favorite things when I would talk about celebrities and what they did was don't count somebody else's money. So there's a part of me also that says, you know, 
they decided they wanted to come back and I can't tell somebody else to do with what to do with their their money, their prestige, their um, quote unquote platform, which we a word that's been bandied about a lot recently. So there's that. But then, yeah, there is a part of me that is slightly disappointed and um, intrigued by the way things seem to play out. I just um, I'm interested in what the way this sort of was very quickly resolved with a lot of promises that don't seem to have hard um, benchmarks and things up front. Uh, I'm just, I'm interested in it. But despite all of those feelings, I think the objective reality is that the NBA players showed us something amazing, right? They showed us what their power was. Um, By the way, you know, one Kyrie Irving, who we, we make fun of a lot, said, you know, before they went into the bubble that, Actually, the players don't need the owners. We could play on our own, like pointing to some of the things that became apparent, you know? So just by showing that and by bringing certain distinctions to the fore, you know, the difference between these rich owners and the communities in which they do their business, all these kinds of interesting issues and tensions of class and race, just by showing some of those things, it was an an immensely powerful thing. But they also showed us, I think, some of the difficulties, right? Whether it's how their union works and who's really in charge of the players, when we say the players, who who is that? Is it just LeBron and Chris Paul? Is it a more democratic organism than that? Um, So some of those impediments were also shown as well. It was uh, it was fascinating. So they could have just come back after missing that couple of days of games and have made their point and said, like, you know, we stopped because we didn't feel like it was right to play and we showed our power. And now you you paid attention to us then and you'll be paying attention to us now. And that, I think, would have been enough in a lot of ways. But instead, they chose a, a slightly different approach, which was to say we came back because we got this particular set of things from ownership. Like we got this package and that mm-hmm. was the result of our leaving. And so right. when that is the declaration that's made, then you look at the package of things and you're kind of inclined to think, all right, well, what did they get? Is this enough? And maybe that's <laughs> maybe that's the wrong approach, but I feel like that's kind of what they've left us with. And when you look at the collection of things, it's a creation of a social justice coalition among players, coaches, and front offices. What you mentioned in the intro, Joel, about transforming arenas owned by teams into polling places, and then also just an increased number of public service announcements during playoff games. Like, look, I'm not, I certainly don't mean to diminish any of that. All that stuff is important. But when you look at it, compared to the possibilities that seemed ripe when the strike was announced, you know, is disappointment the the right word? It just, it doesn't seem like a huge transformational thing that's happened. Yeah, can I I be honest? Um, So all of this combined with um, watching Jamal Murray get emotional after the post game mm-hmm. uh, during post game interview last night made me uncomfortable and I you know now some of that is maybe because he was so emotional that he couldn't fully articulate himself in the moment and Murray was wearing the Brianna Taylor and George Floyd shoes yeah exactly yeah he had images of George Floyd and uh, Brianna Taylor on his shoes exactly and I'm just there's a couple things. One, I'm just wary of black people repeatedly mining their pain and inner turmoil to make the case for their own humanity and like whether they deserve equal protection under the law. Like there's just something about that that I've seen these interviews that are similar to that. Like Doc Rivers, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, um, the, a couple nights before 
doing the same thing. And it just really made me uncomfortable. But the other thing is that I can't even think in terms of this as a disappointment or a success or whatever, because it's such a tremendous indictment of our society that we're burdening NBA players with being moral authorities on this issue. Yeah. And that we're asking them to do things that we would never ask other people to do. Like this is this is not a world that they're making, and yet people are asking to asking them to be held accountable for solving its problems. Republican congressmen don't get the questions about the stuff that Jalen Brown does. And, and, and Jalen Brown, I guess it was on Saturday, I don't know if it was before or after his playoff game, and they asked him what he thought about the concessions, so to speak, that the players had gotten from the league owners and league officials. And uh, he said this. Promises are made year after year. We've heard, we've, heard, we've heard a lot of these terms and these words before. We heard them in 2014, reform, and we're still hearing them now. You know, a lot of these are just reshaping the same ideas and nothing is actually taking place. And, I mean, he's right, but that's not something that's confined to the NBA. That, that, is, a, that is a societal problem. Like, that, that is something that you hear, a, a, you know, a complaint about electoral politics every year, especially this year. And the idea that, you know, the NBA is supposed to hold people accountable in ways that the electorate hasn't before just really makes me uncomfortable and just seems silly to me. But maybe maybe I'm diminishing their so-called platform. I don't know. Right. Yeah. There are these people that entertain us and it does seem strange for them to be tasked with leading the way, especially when it comes to labor itself. Right. There is there's something that's always a contradiction when we watch sports, right? Is that like, I mean, and as NBA fans, we all know we've been through lockout shortened seasons, right? Labor has been at the the forefront of this. And one of the things um, I read really interestingly, the, the nation's Dave Zirin wrote a thing about how this was a moment for the rest of the labor movement to finally join this in a kind of unified and um, sort of in unison join with these players and, and make labor itself as a force visible in this movement for social justice that's been going on for the past few weeks. So I don't know, the structure of our society means that maybe it is the the players who have to galvanize, you know, move other people towards this next phase of what this movement can be. I mean, this morning it was reported that the New York City teachers are preparing to strike over COVID, you know, that I think that this in some ways could be a harbinger of labor being a more prominent voice in all of this. But also the interesting thing with that Jalen Brown thing, the weird thing about placing this sort of political meaning onto the players is that the players themselves, just like, you know, if you want to continue this thing of them being a microcosm of the wider society, players themselves don't all agree on what progress means. When you read closely a lot of these reports that have come out, uh, Chris Haynes's Yahoo report among them, the sort of TikTok of the the two days of the strike, it seems clear to me that there's at least, and it's it's more than this, but there is at least a very clear generational shift. A, mm-hmm. a difference, a generational difference among the players, right? Like it seems yes. that the younger people, Jalen Brown, noted N plus one reader among them and maybe the leader of them, um, <laughs> has a more confrontational idea of what the players' stance vis-a-vis the management and the owners should be. You know, I think mm-hmm. LeBron is maybe LeBron's generation is maybe the sort of still kind of post-Jordan in their idea that the players and the ownership are really in what amounts to a partnership, you know, and they are working together to propagate uh, what, you know, the Times as Mark Stein calls hashtag this league, you know, we're all in it together and we're all kind of pushing this product forward and growing the game, as they often say, right? And in ways that are, you know, sometimes good, sometimes strange, you know, and the younger players, because because they are post LeBron and have, I think, a, a deeper sense of their own power. These younger guys, I think they kind of um, 
they they are questioning this. And so it's very it becomes easy because the players are largely black and largely young in the larger sense, right? We're all talking we're talking about a bunch of people who are under 40. They're all young, right. but within this mono this big, you know, mostly black, mostly young mass, there are other interesting things happening and therefore it's a problem for us to project our political wishes onto these 450 guys. It's not realistic. So so Brown said and I think in that same media availability that because of the reporting the leaks that came out of that players-only meeting, that there's too much of a tendency to emphasize the differences between players and not enough of a focus on the unity between them. Now, that sounds like something that you would say if you want yourself to emphasize the unity between the players and not the differences. And so not being in that room, I think it's hard for us to know. But um, I read this stuff the same way that you did, Vincent, and just focusing in on what seems like a generational divide that is, you know, you can find parallels throughout our society. I mean, it's it seems like no coincidence that Jalen Brown was one of the most visible players at protests before the bubble, that like he was out there out front leading on the street before being forced into this environment where the only outlet that he has for activism is like talking to fans on social media or talking to reporters mm-hmm. on Zoom. Mm-hmm. It's just like so constrained and so, you know, separate from uh, the rest of the world that, you know, his peers are living in. But then I also think about a guy like George Hill, who by all accounts was the one who started this whole movement by, I don't think he necessarily was intending to do it, but he said before the Bucks magic game, I'm not going to play. And then Sterling Brown heard it. Sterling Brown, who's a victim of police brutality, um, his Bucks teammate said, all right, I'm not going to play either. And then Giannis ultimately decides I'm not going to play. And then when Giannis decides it, um, the whole team doesn't play. Yeah, Bucks can't show yeah. up then. Right? We, we are no longer playing. Yeah. And then when the whole team doesn't play, the whole league doesn't play. But the fact that it was George Hill, a guy that we all know, um, because he's been in the league for a long time, he's not quite a journeyman, but he's somebody who is not you know, a star in the league. The fact that I don't necessarily know what it signifies, but he's not LeBron James. He's not even Jalen Brown. Like He doesn't fit kind of neatly into that dichotomy. And yet right. he was the one who started this. He's the one who felt like he he needed to do what he needed to do. And he had a voice and it ultimately got amplified. When we recorded the so-called emergency podcast at the time, like we sort of hinted at the idea or, or there was hinting at the idea that this wasn't necessarily an organized labor strike, right? That it happened organically, that a couple players said, I don't want to play. And then everybody had to follow in line in a show of solidarity, which does say something about the the relationship that the players have amongst themselves, right? That they at least have enough cohesiveness among themselves, despite generational class differences, whatever else. Like, they had enough solidarity to do that. But because it happened so organically in that way, and it was a response to what was a very um, emotional event in Kenosha the night before, I mean, you know, that that with a written house kid had you know went into went into Kenosha and, and shot a couple of protesters um so it was a very tense time and you could totally understand how the players may have responded to that and been like well what the hell are we doing here but i think we talked when we've talked about labor i mean the reality is if the players had walked away there was going to be some severe financial implications right and that's sort of the the piece of this that we can't 
avoid talking about is that if they had decided, well, we want to stop playing to make a point, they would have been in a much, much weaker bargaining position with their owners and the league officials or whatever. So they had to come back in some ways. And I think that that seemed to have been the through line in all the cases to be planned. You know, Chris Paul and LeBron James reportedly said, hey, look, we've got to come back and we've got to play. And not everybody was on the same page. They fell in line that first day. But after that, like you could see, uh, if we don't do this, man, like, do we really want to do this? And so even people that ostensibly have a lot of like power or influence or they work in a labor situation where you think they have more power than they actually do. Like you, you can see that, I mean, being a worker, I mean, it's very vulnerable. You know what I mean? Like all of us at some point have to show up and go to work if we can. And like, it looked like that's kind of what happened here. Can we do a little counterfactual history here? So LeBron brings in Obama and I think, (laughs) I feel like Obama advised them to do what you think Obama would have advised them to do. It's like, go get back and play, like find a kind of, way to move forward here and partner, as you mentioned, and get some concessions, but get back on your platform. Like, what What if instead the, the call of the politician would have been to AOC or to, <laughs> or to Bernie? It's just like, it's so like LeBron and Chris Paul to like bring in Obama. It's like, is, is there like a version of this that like would have played That's out differently? Funny. It's just funny to think about right. what might have happened. Yeah, not to extend the counterfactual game too much, but I mean, you can think of, again, because of the nature of the NBA and because of what we know, what so many of us have spent lots of time complaining about in terms of the owners, you can imagine something that, you know, brought attention to the fact that these owners get money, public funds to build stadiums, right? And what if someone did quick math on current ownership groups, how much money in public funds have you gotten uh, to build your arenas? And is there a sum that is either equal to that or some serious percentage of that that you could then reinvest in certain ways? Are Do all of the vendors and subcontractors that work with these ownership groups provide health care and a living wage to all their workers, right? Preposterously, the owners get 50% of all of the basketball-related income that comes into the league. What if there was a percentage of that that had to go toward any number of things. What if this was a league, you know, there's, I'm like getting myself upset. There are, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we, when often when we talk about urban and conflate urban with black, that is a total conflation. That means nothing in the NBA. Actually, all the teams are in areas that are affected by gun violence, right? Like Minnesota, where George Floyd was just killed. Obviously, Milwaukee uh, is 40 miles from Kenosha. You could go on and on. You could, you know, what if the the players asked the the uh, the owners to be anti-gun, right? What if this was a, a, a way to put forward very serious urban issues, right? I think that, some, you know, to your point, a different person might have given them some more ideas of what to ask for and how ardently to ask for it. Well, you know what they could have done, too? They could have just asked the WNBA. I mean, the WNBA already (laughs) has, you know, a social and racial justice coalition, for instance, right? Like, that's something they already had that the NBA built up to. Uh, And the WNBA clearly has a very different relationship with its uh, ownership group than the NBA does, right? Just looking at the example of the Atlanta Dream and uh, and how they're handling one of their co-owners, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, they could have done that as well. But, yeah, I think that LeBron and Chris Paul, they see themselves not maybe not peers of 
Obama, but they see themselves as, you know, <laughs> they've, they've roughly got some of the same interests. And so, of course, that's the person they call out to, right? Yeah. But I do want to just say, I don't want to overlook the idea that turning the arenas into voting centers, like that's not an insignificant concession, right? That's like, huge. It's amazing. Yeah, that's a big deal. And that's something that probably would not have happened if they had not pushed for it. You mentioned the WNBA, Joel, and a big moment for the players, not just on the Dream, but throughout the entire league, was wearing shirts that said Vote Warnock for Kelly Loeffler's opponent in the upcoming Senate race. It was very explicitly putting themselves in the middle of this election. And one thing that NBA players haven't done so far as I've seen, whether it's through LeBron with his More Than a Vote initiative or anyone else, is to say, vote Biden, or we need to get Trump out of office. Is that surprising? I mean, LeBron called Trump, you bum, on social media. It's not like that would be like breaking <laughs> the seal on anything. But it's it's just like everything else about this is so explicit about this movement. And to leave that as kind of implicit, like vote go to the polls, like wink, wink. Um, th- does it seem surprising to you, or is that just smart? I... Don't know. I mean, <laughs> if your your scintillating conversation with Ethan Sherwood Strauss is any indication, some people might have thought that that would be some version of suicide for the league. Who knows that that's right. just beyond the pale for the NBA? I don't too know. Too much wokeness. But too much wokeness, too much whatever. Um, I do think that in the NBA, as opposed to the WNBA, there does, even though they have this sort of progressive um multicultural reputation there is some vestige of not conservatism but there is a sort of primness to the league as a as a whole as a pair as opposed to the players they're going to let lebron say uh, i'll say let in quotes they they don't they're not going to get mad at him if he says you bum or whatever but adam silver is going to try to tell you why you know in his heart he's voting for biden but without ever saying that right as opposed to you know they're going to let popovich and kerr say that but part of the sort of jujitsu I think that they've managed is we can create space for people to individual actors within our league to do that. But we are going to maybe that's the water's edge for us. So I'm actually not surprised by that. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. John Thompson Jr. was a very large man. Six foot ten, the tallest coach I can remember ever seeing on the sideline um, as I became a basketball fan in the 80s. But Thompson was even bigger than his stature. He transformed Georgetown, where he was the head coach from 1972 to the 1998-99 season, into a college basketball powerhouse. But more than that, he transformed big-time college basketball, making the sport bolder and blacker than it had been before. Thompson's Hoyas, led by Patrick Ewing, won the 1984 National Championship, the first title ever won by a Black coach, and by a team with an all-Black roster. He also led the first sports protest that I remember as a kid. His walkout in 1989 
protesting a proposal known as Proposition 42, which would have banned freshmen who didn't meet academic standards from getting on scholarship. There's a lot to talk about here, including his contentious relationship with the press, which inspired the phrase Hoya Paranoia, and also his connection with Allen Iverson, who has said repeatedly that Thompson saved his life. Joel, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you when you think of John Thompson? Unfortunately, the first thing that comes to mind for me as somebody who grew up in Houston, as a University of Houston fan, is that he won his first national championship at the expense of my University of Houston Cougars. So like, that's probably one of the very first major sporting events that I can remember because I was, I may have not even been six years old, but I was right around that. Um, and, and so I remember Georgetown winning. And I remember my father not being too broken up about it because the head coach of the other team was black, which is, you know, sort of the way that uh, <laughs> rooting uh, interests went in my family a lot of the times. But beyond that, you know, as I came to read more about him and learn more about him, and we talk a lot about those starter, you know, autobiographies and biographies. And I read one by John Thompson when I was very young. And so one of the things that came out of that is I thought a lot about the value of having like an unafraid, unintimidated black coach and the effect that that might have on their players, because that can give you a lot of strength, especially in a time when you're like particularly vulnerable and sort of reshaping your identity. Like when you're in college, having that sort of influence is really pivotal. And it's just quite a gift to have someone not think of you in I guess the way I say it is, what a gift it must be for someone to not think of you as a problem in need of solving or something broken in need of fixing. And that's the way I thought John Thompson thought of his players. And actually, this morning when we were doing research, I came across him talking about Allen Iverson. And, you know, back in the days when people were worrying about him, you know, the people that Iverson kept company with and all this other stuff. And he said, now, why would Allen Iverson not have a posse? They love him. They're around him. They're comfortable with him. They include him. He doesn't have to score 40 points to be included into their world. And like that's just a really powerful way of looking at the world. And that's not often what you hear from coaches or professors or people um, in positions of authority at a certain point. Um, that's just a perspective that you just don't hear. Like, even today, you don't hear it. And it must have sounded especially radical 30 or so years ago when he said it. So, I mean, that's, that's a lot of stuff. But like, you know, John Thompson was just, you know, one of those first guys that I just remember thinking, man, that dude is not afraid. And it must be awesome to learn from somebody like that. Yeah. My first, I, I'm pretty sure my first time really knowing about him and, and, and having this reverence for him, which I think a lot of basketball fans did, was around Allen Iverson. This guy who, I mean, it, it's easy to forget how much trouble Allen Iverson was in before he got to Georgetown how much he'd already seen and how, you know, how precarious so many parts of his life already were. Um, and the, the fact that he always cited this, this man, this someone who acted as a, you know, had this sort of father figure thing to him. You know, he, he was out of sort of without any of the negative associations. He was somebody out of the sort of world of like, the Huxtables or something, this man who carried himself with this sort of forceful dignity. Also, though, he makes me think that um, there is this kind of bygone era of, um, especially in college basketball, but it was even sort of the case in in professional basketball with people like Phil Jackson, you know, this sort of, that there was this sort of graceful patriarchal figure who would be not only a tactician, but also kind of a father figure, kind of this sort of patrician, somebody to look after you. And now I guess I think this is kind of out with the way players come along now and that they 
there's much more power and they have their own relationships with, for example, shoe companies and things like that. But he kind of showed that a black man could fit that mold, but that one, that he could fit that mold, but then two, that there would be some costs with the, the Hoya paranoia and having to adjust that mode to fit somebody like Iverson, that there would be all kinds of different contortions to make that work. So it was, yeah, he sort of filled an archetype, but then at the same time kind of switched it around, kind of remixed it. I mean, the the sport that he came into, you know, he came to Georgetown in 1972, a school. I mean, it's almost like comical how far off the like image Georgetown was from like, you know what, if you kind of looked at the world of like higher education through the lens of sports, which I think probably all of us did as growing up as kids, like, you know, about these schools because they had good basketball or football teams. And like, you look at the image of, of Georgetown, um, that Thompson cultivated of this like black team, um, you know, there's even like Michael Graham, the first player who really like shaved his head um, in, in the early 80s. Patrick Ewing is just like the kind of coolest, blackest team in all of sports. And like how different that was from the image of Georgetown University. Where I think like <laughs> I had a friend who told me like he thought that Georgetown was a historically black college growing up. Oh, you hear that over and over again today. And I, it's the same thing. I, I grew up thinking Georgetown was like, if not a black college, like it just was overrepresented in terms of black students or whatever, right? I mean, can you imagine like how forceful of a personality and how impressive it is to take this institution and transform it in the way that he did in such a short period of time? I mean, it wasn't even a place where they were good at basketball, much less a, much less a place that had a basketball team that looked like it did and played like it did and to take it and become a national, you know, losing to Jordan on the shot in 82 and then beating Joel's Cougars in 84, losing to Villanova in 85, but just becoming this kind of cultural force that transcended the game and really transforming the sport in the way, um, in, in the way that he did. It's just such an impressive accomplishment. And then, you know, Joel, when you talked about the ways in which he related to players, I think you can kind of also look at it, and and this is a testament to how com- complex he was, you can spin it in the total opposite way. The, the Hoya paranoia thing was about how he wouldn't let the media talk to the players. And he cultivated this sort of, you know, it's us against the world sort of mentality, which you can totally understand given um, the racism that he and the team faced. And then there's the story about him confronting the famed DC drug lord, Rafael Edmund, that you'll be reading about in all the stories about Thompson this week, and that Edmund was kind of approaching players like Alonzo Mourning and tri- befriending them. And Thompson, like nobody, and and this sounds apocryphal, everybody says that it's true, but like <laughs> it has the whiff of legend to it, that he was the only one who ever stood up to Edmund and say, you have to, said, you have to stay away from, from my players. And so Joel, like he wanted, you know, he didn't see these guys as problems and he didn't see them as things that needed, you know, uh, like they needed to be fixed. And yet he wanted to protect them and keep them, you know, cosseted or whatever whatever you want to call it. And I attribute that because if you read John Thompson's interviews or read his quotes, he actually has like some very interesting views on race and racism because he talks a lot about how he's experienced a lot of racism from black people, which I, I which I take to mean colorism, right? Because he talked about how he was big and black and people growing up in his neighborhoods, you know, would make fun of him. And, you know, that 
he's, you know, faced a lot of scrutiny amongst his own people. And I think the way that Ralph Wiley wrote about it is that Black people that did not know John Thompson well tended to like him more than Black people who did. And that (laughs) white people that knew him well liked him a lot more than white people that didn't know him at all. That's fascinating. Hmm. Yeah, which is, a, which is sort of a fascinating way to think about it, right? It just is, he cut this like really unique figure. I would love to know more about the hiring process that Georgetown went through when they brought in John Thompson, because I believe he was a high school coach yep. before they brought him in. Just the idea that this predominantly white school would hire a black coach, and not just a black coach, a black coach who looked like that, a black coach who talked like that, and a black coach who was, hey, man, I'm going to bring in a bunch of black dudes and you guys are just going to have to deal with it. And, and I mean, and to support him because he faced a lot of criticism for having these all black teams. And he, that criticism even followed him into picking the 1988 Olympic team where they were worried that he wasn't going to pick enough white players for that team. Dan Marley was on that team. Was he the only other one? Was he the one? Was anybody else? <laughs> Look, if you've got Thunder Dan on the team, you're covered. That's all you need, of, Thunder yeah, Dan. That's yeah. what you and need. Thunder Dan, let's get his 23 and me before we make any assumptions, okay? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I always think of with John, that he just, to your point, Vincent, earlier, they're not even really coaches like that today anymore, right? Like, do, do, does that sort of archetype even exist? I mean, I, I think the last, the last holdover, and it's only because of his perch at on, on Team USA is Coach K, you know, mm-hmm. um, and even and even there, you see all the time guys just being like, "Oh yeah, I hate that dude. Like he didn't put me on the team." I mean, you know, there's that <laughs> that sort of reverential status that would even cover up some of the ways in which people don't like the person. Like that's gone, I think. Vincent, what do you make of like looking back on it now? The Prop Forty Two walkout, and that's a thing I really remember. And maybe not grasping what it was and what he was doing, but it was a very effective form of protest in terms of getting attention. The fact that right. it wasn't like he said, I'm not going to go to the game. He actually went to the game. And then as it was about to start, he walked out of the arena, making <laughs> sure that the cameras captured it. But this was yeah. a protest against a rule that said, essentially, if you don't meet these um, academic standards, we're not going to... Can't get a scholarship, which is, you know, he thought was racist and he was not afraid to say it. And he got the rule, um, you know, by the, you know, he people followed him and the, the rule wasn't enacted. Yeah, it's it's amazing. We've been talking about this in terms of the NBA, the way that protest politics and the inevitable fact of like visibility in sports, like come together and marry one another, like the way you just narrated that shows the savvy and we've talked all about all the ways that he stands out, right? 6'10", black man, you know, always, you know, everybody knows him. And so- Can we also mention that he won a couple championships with the Celtics? He won, the yeah. Wait, two, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he's got all this history and, and, and in his case, wears it all on his body and knows that if he goes to the place and then makes a move, not only does it draw attention, but it serves as a metaphor for like um, a certain kind of indispensability, right? And that that I think is speaks directly to the issue. Like you need these young kids and him taking himself away becomes then like a way to, I think, show what could happen on the collegiate level and even at the professional levels if, if there were 
more of that kind of refusal. So it's this interesting interplay between sort of, yes, presence and using platform, but also saying, you know, what if I'm not there? And it's interesting, right? Like, yes, Georgetown is this majority white sort of conservative seeming Catholic university, but there is a slight difference, right? Because even if you think about the Fab Five or whatever, you don't think about, you know, the the black communities of Ann Arbor, right? But in Georgetown, there is that middle slice that is the university that's largely white, but you're in DC. And that that matters too, that you're in this historically black city, even if it's not a black identified institution. You know, when I lived in DC, this was after Thompson had already retired, but I went to watch them play a couple times. And it was like, you know, these are the Greg Monroe years. This is not the Ewing uh, (laughs) Georgetown. But some of that grandeur and some of that identification between the players and the place, if not necessarily the institution, some of that, you know, that plus the sort of faded glory of the the Big East, too. Like, it still kind of clung to it. it. It felt like something. And to be a coach and somehow still be the main attraction and then understand that power, I think that's that's really important. But it, And, you know, after that, those issues like that were not at all resolved after um, 1989. You know, if you read uh, one of my favorite basketball books, Darcy Frey's The Last Shot. It's all about guys just trying to get their 700 on the SAT so that they can be eligible to, yeah, yeah. El- eligible to play college ball. So all of the sort of unfairnesses of that have still managed to pertain, but that was a big move. Joel, he was a believer in college as a transformational opportunity for the players he was bringing into the the program and talked about you know the opportunity to use basketball and not just have basketball be the end goal and to get an education and i think we're all pretty cynical about college sports and about the ncaa so do you feel like he was upholding this institution in a way that it maybe shouldn't have been upheld? Or was he kind of looking at it from a a vantage that was appropriate for his era and was saying like, yeah, maybe this, uh, you know, obviously, as we just talked about, he saw the flaws in the NCAA and attacked, uh, attacked it when he thought appropriate, but thought, yeah, there is still a way that you can use the system for your benefit. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm definitely torn on that, right? Um, He won his national championship in 1984, which is like sort of the year, this dividing line when college sports sort of fundamentally changes because of, you know, the the TV money starts rolling in and it sort of fundamentally alters um, the relationship that athletes have with their universities and the universities have with their conferences and the conferences have with the NCAA, right? But to your point, so... While I do believe that players should be paid for their labor, I would never dismiss the case being made that college is a transformative opportunity. And the reason I say that is because I played college football with guys who I know that would not have been able to get into college without the opportunity. And as a result, have, you know, moved on and have fairly middle-class lives. Like, yeah, I've, I saw them grow just within those few years and then get placed in professional opportunities that might not have existed because they probably wouldn't have been able to afford to go to school or they may have not been able to get in otherwise, right? So I would never deny that John Thompson is right, that it is a transformative opportunity. But that doesn't mean that you don't owe people what they're owed. You know what I mean? They don't mean, they don't mean you, you can't pay people because those, those athletes are also giving those universities opportunities as well. It's a transaction. And so I think, you know, John Thompson talked often about wanting to be rich, 
you know, he said, I want to be remembered as a teacher and I want to be rich. And um, <laughs> which I think is that is that is my goal, too. I don't care about being a teacher. I would like to be rich someday. But I think that you can balance both of those. You can hold both of those ideas in your head, right? That college is important and it's a it's a development. It's an opportunity to develop as a person and as an athlete. And that also that people should be paid for putting their bodies on the line and going through it because it's a, it's a fundamentally different experience as a college athlete than as opposed to just being a college student. So I you know I wish I, I'm sure there's probably more literature out there on what what John Thompson thinks about players being paid. I don't know. I haven't seen him weigh in on the the most recent fight over this stuff. I bet it's out there and I'm probably just behind, but I'm, don't you all think I mean I would imagine well, I don't, you know what? I don't want to guess what John Thompson would say about that now, to be honest, because I just, yeah. I, I, it could go anywhere, right? Like knowing who he is. Yeah. I can imagine him being not only just sort of attached to the idea of just education as a pathway, which is uncontroversial as far as I'm uh, concerned, yeah. but also to the more problematic thing of student athlete. You know, I think he right. did have an idea of that coming together and being a, a, a designated area, which, so I don't know. Interestingly, I didn't know until recently that he had been, you know, he was on the board of Nike. So he was this person that, and, and, and all of the ways that that plays in college athletics, you know? So he was somebody who definitely straddled a lot of these things, you know, the, the university, the individual athlete, the athletic gear sponsor that sort of stood in the middle of all the contradictions of sport, sort of maybe uniquely in that sort of intersection. So, Partial answer for you, Joel, is that I found a radio interview that he did um, in 2019 and talking about whether college athletes should be paid. And kind of disappointingly, he just got kind of, as a lot of people do, got caught up in the details of it. Like, all right, you're saying that college athletes should be paid. Well, how would we implement it? What are the Title IX implications? Would you pay the last guy on the bench as much as? And it's like, that's not really kind of the fundamentally mm-hmm. important thing here, but he was somebody who, I guess, you know, had a practical experience on the job and was concerned about the practical implications <laughs> of, of what this what this would have done for, you know, in his era and, and in this era. Interesting. Makes sense, yeah. Also, it should just be said that John Thompson was a great basketball coach. Um, he lost two championship games by a total of three points mm. and was a gracious, a very gracious loser on, in those occasions, but... Had he won those two games, we might be talking about him in the same way that we talk about Coach K, Dean Smith, whatever. Like, he's still a legend, but I always feel like, you get it. We talk so much about his activism and his teaching and not so much about what he did on the court. But, like, he was a great coach, too. It's just people just don't remember it as much at this point now. So We can adjudicate the 1988 Olympics at, at another time. We'll focus on, we'll focus on college success. <laughs> okay. <laughs> totally right. And maybe he just wanted there to be a dream team in in ninety two. So that's why that's why he led the U.S. to a bronze medal. Hey, Russia was using pros by then. Okay. <laughs> With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick, so I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about the on-court basketball side of the NBA playoffs. Luka Doncic is out. 
the Lakers have moved on, and Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell, they're going back and forth in one of the most epic shootouts in postseason history. If you want to hear our conversation about all that, and you will want to, you have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangoutplus. Last week, the Washington Post published the latest in a series of pieces on the toxic, male-dominated workplace culture of the Washington football team. For that story, the Post collected accounts of 25 women who said they'd been sexually harassed while working for the team. This following a previous article that included 17 such accounts. What's new this time is that owner Daniel Snyder was directly implicated, with one woman, a former cheerleader, saying that Snyder approached her at a 2004 charity event and suggested she join his close friend in a hotel room so they could get to know each other better. Then there's the lead account in the story about how the team's then lead broadcaster, Larry Michael, allegedly commissioned a video of outtakes from the team's 2008 cheerleader swimsuit calendar video, asking for a collection of, quote, the good parts. That is, moments when the women's nipples were inadvertently exposed. Michael said the video was to be made for Snyder, and the Post has a copy of the video and a similar one made in 2010. Both Snyder and Michael denied having any knowledge of the videos after the Post piece came out. Joining us now is Lindsay Jones. She's a senior writer for The Athletic covering the NFL. Last week, she wrote a piece headlined, The NFL Never Had Its Me Too Reckoning, Let Washington Be Where It Starts. Lindsay, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You've been covering the NFL for a long time. How much of what The Post reported about Washington is a reflection of that organization's culture and how much of it is a reflection of the culture of the NFL as a whole? Well, when the first Post story came out in late July, there was not a lot of surprise from women who work in and around professional sports about the things that were in that story, about the sort of toxic work environment uh, for women who worked there. Um, That story also included the accounts of two female reporters who had covered the team who were sexually harassed by team officials. None of that was surprising. I think what we found through this Washington Post reporting and subsequent reporting is that The environment and the culture within the Washington football team is especially toxic, but it's hardly unique in that women who work across this industry, whether they work in the business office, in football, are cheerleaders, are reporters who cover the team, who work in team media, they all have similar experiences to this. I think what we've seen in Washington might be on on the extreme side, especially what has happened for a very long time with that cheerleading program there. But I don't think you're going to find a lot of women who were shocked to hear these sort of allegations. Lindsay, what are the odds that the team's workplace investigation of itself will actually produce a final report that's credible, right? Because they're invest- essentially Dan Snyder hired somebody that's going to then hire, you know, that's going to investigate themselves. It doesn't seem like the way the investigation should be working. Yeah, so this was something that was kind of controversial and a little bit surprising, the fact that the NFL allowed Daniel Snyder to hire an attorney to conduct this own investigation. And this investigation began right after the Post's first story came out. And that first story did not directly implicate Dan Snyder in any of these allegations. So that would be 
at the time, that was the explanation for why this was not an independent investigation that was commissioned by the NFL. Rather, it was one that Washington was able to call on its own. The attorney who is running that investigation, a woman named Beth Wilkinson, who is a very high-powered D.C. attorney, a former um, federal prosecutor, uh, she came recommended by the league office from Roger Goodell and his staff, and she will report her findings to Roger Goodell and and his staff. And so if if there are people within the Washington organization who are not complying, she will report that to Goodell. And Goodell will use whatever comes out of this report to potentially levy discipline against um, whoever within the Washington organization. I still do think it's a mistake that Goodell and the NFL League Office did not make this a truly independent investigation. They called it an investigation in a statement that they released last week. Um, But that's not true. I think you could call it an outside investigation. But the fact that Beth Wilkinson was hired by Dan Snyder and is being paid, presumably, by Dan Snyder doesn't make it an independent investigation. Have you heard anything, Lindsay, about other NFL teams, either overtly or more quietly trying to kind of look into their histories, into their closets, so to speak, and 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 make sure that nothing like this has happened or is happening? Is there sort of a, a are, are other people sort of taking stock at this moment? Or are they just sort of glad that they're not the Washington team whose name is an expletive uh, that we we can't even say like they're the totem for all things bad in the in the league maybe i mean are is this just another scapegoat moment that just sticks to them or are others kind of trying to see what what's going on in their own houses yeah i mean i think there probably is a little bit of that there's nothing out there publicly at this point where you know no teams have you know officially begun investigations of those sorts of things but that was one of the things that i wanted to address last week when i was writing um, a column about this because you know owners are very, very reticent to get involved with their peers' business. They don't get involved in their, um, you know, their financial business. They certainly stay out of their personal business and the, the way that they run their individual franchises. But this is hardly the only place where, you know, women are marginalized in the workplace, where women are face sexual harassment in the workplace, especially within sports. So, these owners would be wise to examine what sort of culture is going on in the buildings and what the what the environment is like for the women that work for them, whether that's how their cheerleaders are treated, how many women work in the business office, who has seats at the table, whose voices are actually being heard. Um, and, and when there are allegations, because we know, I mean, the women who work in and around the NFL, and especially in media, you know, we know a lot of the incidents that happen to other reporters. We know that teams know about these things. And a lot of times we feel like they're not taken seriously. And it's probably time that across the NFL, these sort of allegations are taken seriously and addressed because while, like I mentioned, Washington, I think is a, is especially heinous and they're kind of the example around the NFL for the worst run franchise in the NFL. <laughs> these sort of things are happening and you don't want to be the next one, right? You don't want to be yeah. the next team that has this sort of, this sort of scandal to hit and it could happen probably everywhere, all 32 teams across the NFL. So I think it would be better for um, the franchise, for the league, and for America if Snyder was forced to sell the team. If he <laughs> if he sold the team of his own volition, which is not going to happen, but if, or if he was forced to sell the team. Um, Lindsay, in your column, you said you weren't expecting Snyder to sell and you weren't expecting other NFL owners to try to force him to do so. Did you think, I mean, this is an opinion piece, did you think about calling on the league to force him out, calling on owners to try to force him out? And is there a risk 
in saying we don't expect this to happen and kind of giving them cover to do you know the easy thing which is to just let this guy continue to skate and be the one of the worst if not the worst owners in professional sports yeah absolutely and it was it was something i thought about and when i wrote that column last week i just gotten off a very long conference call planning call with fellow reporters and editors from around our company about what's going to happen in washington and i think part of you know i like you said i have covered the nfl for a long time this is my 14th year uh, or my 13th year excuse me covering the nfl and I have a lot of skepticism and just kind of a lot of cynicism about way the way the league works and what yeah. it takes to actually force progress and force some sort of change. And owners are the last ones to hold themselves accountable, to hold each other accountable, and to actually, you know, take a, a giant step like that. And we saw a massive, a massive change within the Washington football team this year when Dan Snyder finally agreed to to drop the team name and change the team name. But he didn't do it out of the goodness of his heart. He didn't do it because all of a sudden this light bulb went off where he thought, aha, this team name is racist. What everybody has been saying for all these years is true. He did it because his business partners forced him to. It was FedEx. It was Nike. Um, there was tremendous financial pressure. And that ultimately is what forces change. And that's what ultimately would force Dan Snyder to ultimately sell this team is if the other owners realize that Washington has become an albatross, that they're not making as much money as they should be. And unfortunately, for all of the losing that Washington has done on the field and for all of the embarrassment that that organization has brought off of the field, they still are one of the highest valued NFL franchises in the league. And they're still bringing in a lot of money, despite how many empty seats they always have at FedEx Field, despite how many people don't want to wear their merchandise anymore. So while they continue to make a lot of money, it's hard to see the other owners stepping up and forcing forcing the sale. And then it also kind of, kind of comes back to uh, a previous question, I think, that Vincent asked about, you know, what are the other owners saying and are they looking within their other organizations? Is that, you know, if they step up and they say, you have to sell because of this or we're going to force you to sell because of this, there are every single other owner is opening themselves up to all of the skeletons that are in their closets. And you can you better believe that there's some very powerful owners around the NFL we're probably terrified of what they would find if all of their history of what it's like for women working in their organizations and for their own personal dealings with women were to come out in the open. Well, speaking of skepticism, you mentioned in your column that you remain skeptical of, of, of Daniel Snyder's motivations behind all of his major moves in 2020. One of those was hiring the NFL's first black team president, Jason Wright. And um, I have a couple questions off of that. One is somebody who's covered the league. Do you have a sense for how dysfunctional the Washington team is compared to everybody else? Because, I mean, that's the thing that sort of occurs to me, that the first Black team president in league history has to clean up this this mess, right? And he's in, not in a, a very good position to succeed. And just generally, what do you know of Jason and his preparedness for this position, I suppose? Yeah, so Jason Wright is extremely impressive. Um, when he was hired, I guess now it was about two weeks ago when Washington made that announcement that he'd be the team president. Um, you know, we kind of started scrambling to find out who is who is Jason Wright. You know, some of us remember covering him as a player. Remember, you know, we've, we found all these scouting reports of kind of what sort of running back he was. Um, but really what you heard when you talked to people who knew him as a player and knew him kind of in those formative years, even get, dating back to when he was a college student at Northwestern and then through his career career, which, you know, he was not a star player by any means. I mean, he was a 
kind of like a running back slash fullback slash, slash special teams player. You know, he was the third down back, which is, you know, very, it's not a glamorous position because he was doing just a lot of blocking in the, in the running game. He was not getting very many carries. Um, but in every locker room that he stepped into, he immediately became a leader. He immediately became one of the most respected voices um, in those locker rooms be- because he had this massive curiosity and interest in issues beyond just X's and O's and what happened on the football field. And, you know, I spoke to him, I guess, right after he was hired and, um, you know, asked him about his experience as a player, how that led to, you know, hit to his interest in maybe going into a front office. And he said he never really, when he was playing, he didn't envision himself becoming, you know, a team president or a general manager or any of those sorts of things. But the time that he spent serving as an NFL PA rep really showed him how much he didn't know as a player about the business side of football and what's going on at the ownership level, what's going on in all of these business negotiations. And that really just solidified him to himself, his decision that he wanted to go, um, that he was going to be done playing and that he was going to go to business school. And he wanted to go kind of start this new career for himself uh, working in business. And he Obviously, he went and got his MBA. He worked for McKinsey and Company as a consultant, and then in that work, he did. Uh, he he really made a name for himself in the diversity inc- diversity and inclusion space and anti racism training and stuff that the NFL very clearly needs right now. So there is no questioning Jason Wright's qualifications right now. Um, and I we've already seen. I mean, he's. He, I don't know if he's been even technically on the job for two weeks. I think Monday may have been his. A week ago, Monday might have been his first starting day. We're already seeing his impact in terms of the meetings that he's held. He was a driving voice when Washington was the first team to cancel a scrimmage last week following the NBA players' decision not to play. And you know he's been a really big part of all of that. He's going to be very highly involved in this investigation into the workplace culture and to the sexual harassment claims. So yeah, I mean, I think he is the right guy at the right time. I. I am skeptical and I remain skeptical about Daniel Snyder's motivations for all of the moves that he's made, but at least now, maybe for the first time in a very long time, maybe, maybe for the duration of Daniel Snyder's ownership, which dates back to 1999, he actually has the right people advising him. You know, Jason Wright is going to be that voice and Ron Rivera is absolutely the right guy to try to fix this mess of a franchise. Um, but Joel, you're exactly right that he's, he's walking into a really difficult situation. And I hope that he's going to be given a lot of runway to really change that culture there. And, you know, if this is a team that they might be bad this year, you know, they have a lot of uncertainty at the quarterback position, their roster top to bottom isn't that great. They'll be They're bad. Head- <laughs> I mean, Ron Rivera is going through cancer treatments right now. I mean, there's like there's a lot that is they're stacked up against. So, you know, I hope that these guys, Ron Rivera and Jason Wright, have a long time to really build this team and rebuild this team into something that the NFL can be proud of, because it's been a really long time since anybody in the NFL has been proud of anything that Washington has done. From a media angle, I mean, one of the sort of characteristics of the relationship between the NFL and the media, partially because of its, you know, enormous uh, rights deals with certain media entities, has been, let's say, a lack of transparency. Let's say a struggle with transparency and whether with, with, with the CTE issues, whether it was with all the drama surrounding Colin Kaepernick, there was a sort of a built in kind of things you won't you won't get to know around the NFL. Is there any reason to believe that this will be 
different. So, for example, you know, there'll be a, a report produced and it goes to Roger Goodell. Will that be open to you? Will that be something that the media will be able to look at in a serious way without millions of miles of redactions? How confident are you that we will even know the real story with this once it's all said and done? Yeah, I mean, that's going to it's a really good question. And that's one of my questions about the the way that this investigation is running. The fact that it was one that was, you know, commissioned by Daniel Snyder. If this had been an independent NFL investigation, you know, they do typically release those entire reports. Um, you know, we saw the the, the, the original Mueller report uh, when Bob Mueller did the, the big investigation into, I believe that was the Ray Rice situation. We, you know, we saw all the documents that went along with mm-hmm. Deflategate. I mean, way too many documents probably that Charts, went along with yeah. Deflategate. And, <laughs> yeah, the PSI levels and all of those uh-huh. sorts of things. So hopefully they will turn all over, the, over all of that. And you know, that's our job, right, as reporters now is to stay on them, to to keep telling these stories. And I think what's been so impressive about what The Washington Post has done over the last, you know, six weeks, although this is not a six week thing. I mean, clearly, this is something that they've been reporting for a very long time is it's it's really journalism 101, right, is that the story doesn't end with the first story. And they had, you know, 15 ish or so women in the first story. That number is now over 50. And you know that there are more. And so it's you, you just can keep digging and you keep getting these stories and you keep trying to hold these um, these people accountable. And there was new da- Sally Jenkins, the, the rock star columnist from the Washington Post who has just been on top of, I mean, she's so good. <laughs> she had another <laughs> column on Monday morning um, about kind of the next steps forward in this and um, the lawyers of the, the women who made these claims against the Washington football team and against Daniel Snyder, their lawyer is now meeting with Washington and the, and the league investigators. So, you know, it's going to continue, continue to move forward. And that's my job. It's my peers job um, to, to hold them accountable here and not let this get kind of swept under the rug, not let this take a backseat because it's an issue that involves women. I think typically that happens a lot in the NFL where, you know, I guess it's my cynicism again of like, will they care? You know, because I think a lot of times we, we see that when it comes to issues involving women in any professional sports that they don't, they just don't care as much about as they would about some other issues. So we just have to keep on them. We have to demand to see that result, that report um, and all of the findings that come out of it. Lindsay, you, you wrote very well and, and movingly in your column about kind of the connection between the women who worked for the Washington football team and women who covered the sport and how you can relate to some of the experiences that are described in the piece. I mean, we we sort of, and, and this is on me, I guess, I mean, we went very quickly past the, you know, the start of that post piece, which is that it's not just that there was that video of the, quote, good parts of that video. It's the fact that the video existed in the first place. It's that there is a cheerleader swimsuit calendar video made by the team. And so even if there wasn't this like horrifying, intrusive video made, it's still like this is the water that we're all swimming in in, in this league. So can you just speak a little bit to kind of the ways in which you relate to what was described in, in the piece and then like what are some of the met coping mechanisms that, you know, women, you, you know, you and your your colleagues, um, you know, take on to, to work in this environment? Yeah, I mean, and I think it's why we related so much and I personally related to the very, the, ver- the first Washington Post story that came out in late July, uh, which did include the accounts from two female reporters, including one of my colleagues here at The Athletic, who's a beat writer who covers Washington, um, who was harassed by one of the personnel executives who has since been fired. Um, I think it's because, you know, th- 
working in sports, any sort of area of sports, but, you know, obviously my lens is very narrow on sports media. You know, this, it is a very male dominated space and the norms that exist in sports media departments, they're, they're not what exist in normal workplaces. You know, I've told a lot of my stories and just like what my job is like from, you know, every aspect of my job, the hours I work, the travel, the work environments, all these sorts of things to, you know, my friends who, you know, are lawyers and doctors and teachers and stuff. And just a lot of that stuff, it just, it's, it's so different. The worlds are so different, but there is this expectation or this understanding that, you know, sports is fun. You know, it's, it's a dream job. You, you should do anything to want to work here. And so you internalize like, okay, this is the cost of working in this space. I just have to deal with the the late night unsolicited text messages from players or from assistant coaches, or, you know, when you're at the NFL combine or the senior bowl, which a lot of men who work in the NFL, they treat those events like they're at a bachelor party. And it's, really disgusting a lot of times and it's people get very very drunk and you know there's just stuff that our male colleagues just don't think about but there are things that really intrinsically affect our ability to to do our job and the way that we connect with sources the way that we develop sources the way that we can then go back to these people that we need to be sources for our stories um so yeah you just you just kind of internalize it and you share it with your female peers i mean i don't know how many different group texts I have with other female reporters, um, women who work for teams in various roles where we just, we vent, we commiserate, we warn each other about problematic men, both within the media industry and then within teams. If I know that there's an assistant coach who consistently acts inappropriately with women, both within the franchise that he works for or the reporters, and he goes to another team, you better believe that I'm going to call the women who cover that team and tell them to look out for this guy and to be careful around him. And that that kind of stuff happens all the time. And we just we just do that stuff because we want to kind of exist in the space. We want to keep our jobs. We want to keep doing our jobs well. And we absolutely don't want to be part of the story. And that's why it was so incredible to me that um, the two, whip, two female reporters came forward because that's our inclination, right? As journalists, you never want to be the story. I mean, that's my nightmare scenario is that I'll show up on, you know, one of these on the blogs, you know, the old dead spin or something like that. That's a nightmare scenario. So that's why we don't say anything. And we kind of just keep, keep internalizing it. And, you know, I'm kind of sick of it now. And now I'm like, you know, I'm older, I'm married, I'm a mom, I kind of feel like I'm the team mom for the other, you know, female reporters now who cover the NFL. And I'm just sick of it. And I want everybody to be exposed now. And I'm still scared sometimes to tell my own, my own stuff. But if it's going to help other women feel comfortable coming forward and holding these men to account, then let's do it. Lindsay, thank you so much for sharing that and for the work that you do. Lindsay Jones, a senior writer for The Athletic. Her piece is headlined, The NFL Never Had Its Me Too Reckoning. Let Washington be where it starts. We'll link to it on our show page. Lindsay, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
Now it is time for After Balls, and we didn't get a chance to talk about it in our John Thompson segment, but I was looking up the history of Georgetown putting kente cloth on the uh, basketball jerseys, which is a big deal and testament to the, um, you know, everything we were talking about before of like how John Thompson transformed this predominantly white institution, at least on the basketball court. Um, and in this article that I found, which is in a publication called Sports Fan Journal, um, the writer just towards the end has a list of Georgetown players. So I thought we could just kind of like let the lesser known Georgetown players of the Thompson era just kind of wash over us for a minute. <laughs> Othella Harrington, Jermaine Junkyard Dog Williams, Jahidi White, Victor Page. This is this is like kind of our era of Georgetown, I guess. Um, Joel, you have other other Georgetown players that just pop into your head when you think Georgetown basketball? Well, I'm, a, I'm the oldest person on the podcast, so like David David Wingate, Reggie Williams. What about Michael Jackson? I do remember Michael Jackson. I do remember Michael Jackson. I think that Victor Page, though, was sort of the, the dividing line between the, the great Georgetown days of yore and uh, sort of the decline towards the end. And if, I mean, have you all read about Victor Page? Do you guys know? I have, yeah. Yeah. I haven't, actually. Oh, it's just we don't have to get into it here, but I if will, you I do will. catch up on him. It's uh, not didn't go so great after. Mm. So, do you want to be doing uh, David Wingate's Joel Victor Pages? Let's do a David Wingate. Yeah. <laughs> All right, David Wingate. We're thinking of you, John Thompson. Rest in peace, Joel. What's your David Wingate? My David Wingate is Cliff Robinson. So. In one of the saddest and most despairing weeks in recent memory, it's understandable if you missed hearing about the death of former NBA player Cliff Robinson. Robinson died early Saturday after what his family said was a year-long fight with lymphoma. He was only 53. Robinson became known as Uncle Cliffy later in his 18-year NBA career, which came to an end in 2007 with the New Jersey Nets. It'd be hard to call Robinson a star, though he did have lots of success in the league. He was the sixth man of the year in 1993, an NBA All-Star a year later, and became a model for the sort of players we now know today as stretch fours. Those players are prized today for their versatility in ways that they weren't then, if only because we didn't have the math and analysis for it. For his career, Robinson shot 36% from three-point range and guarded everyone on the floor from the perimeter to the paint. He was so good at defense, in fact, that he was twice named to the NBA's All-Defensive Second Team in 2000 and 2002. An admirable career, I'd say. Robinson was so much a part of the NBA landscape I grew up with that it seemed as if he was always there, joining the likes of 1990s-ass guys like Kendall Gill, Cedric Sabalos, Anthony Peeler, and Eldon Campbell. Robinson was never going to be Jordan or Dream or even his Blazers teammate Clyde Drexler. But 18 years in the league? Man, that's as much of a feat as becoming an NBA All-Star. Consider only 20 players in league history have ever played 19 or more years. But Robinson wasn't always a vet. Like all of us, Uncle Cliffy was once young. And when he was young, he had the fortune, or is it the misfortune, of playing on some very good but snake-bitten Portland Trailblazer teams. Here I'm thinking particularly of the 1990-91 Blazers. Let me give you the starting lineup for that team. Drexler at shooting guard, Terry Porter at point guard, Jerome Kersey at small forward, Buck Williams at power forward, Kevin Duckworth at center. The only one of those guys to never make an all-star team was Kersey, who started over Robinson. The season before, the Blazers lost to the Detroit Pistons in the NBA Finals, so it seemed like this would be their year. That's the way the NBA was supposed to work back then, a succession of agonizing failure before the breakthrough. 
The Lakers had to go through the Celtics. The Pistons had to go through the Celtics and then the Lakers. And now it was the Blazers' turn. The Blazers lived up to expectations early, winning their first 11 games. They took three of five from the Lakers, then their division rival. They split two games with the Pistons. They split two with the Celtics. And notably, they swept the young, upstart Chicago Bulls led by Michael Jordan. The Blazers went on to win an NBA-leading 63 games that year, and they were the title favorites entering the playoffs. Portland beat Seattle and Utah in the first two rounds, setting up a Western Conference Finals matchup against Magic Johnson and the fading Lakers. This was supposed to be the moment where the Blazers finally defeated their longtime nemesis, who'd beaten them in the last three playoff matchups. But as it turned out, the series was actually the last hurrah of those old Showtime Lakers, and it came at the expense of Cliff Robinson. Facing elimination in Game 6 in L.A., the Blazers trailed virtually all game before making a late run to make things tight. With less than a minute to go, the Lakers had the ball in a one-point lead. Magic was backing down Buck Williams on the left wing, and then... Magic with the ball. Left side, double-team Magic. Ball batted away. Robinson, Porter, Porter, Jerome Kersey to Robinson. They dropped the ball on a three-on-one break. They had a chance to take the lead. In case you missed what happened there, Robinson managed to deflect Magic's pass. Terry Porter scooped it up on the break, and he gave it up to Kersey. Kersey saw Robinson streaking in and threw the pass that Robinson bobbled out of bounds. Mm. It was agonizing to watch, so I can only imagine how Robinson felt. That pretty much did it. The Lakers won the series, but then got blown out by Jordan and the Bulls in the finals. That was MJ's first championship. And if you followed the NBA, you know nobody else had a chance for the next few seasons, including Portland, who lost to the Bulls in six the next year. Just like that, the Blazers' title window was over. But that 1991 team was Portland's best, and maybe they could have beaten Jordan that year before he really got rolling. Only 12 teams in NBA history have won so many games and not advanced to the NBA Finals. It was a historic disappointment. But the death of Cliff Robinson reminded me that that Portland team has also had a disproportionate share of heartbreak away from the court. Two years later, Drazen Petrovic, who was traded to New Jersey a few months before that playoff run, died in a car accident in Germany. He was only 28. In 2008, the year after Robinson retired, Kevin Duckworth died of heart failure. He was 44. In 2015, Jerome Kersey died of a pulmonary embolism. He was 52. It's Saturday, it was Uncle Cliffy. In many ways, Cliff Robinson and the Portland Trailblazers are the unsung foot soldiers who make the NBA what it is. The championship story arcs of Michael and Magic mean nothing if there's no worthy foil. Somebody has to make them work hard for it, so those on-court celebrations and champagne locker room showers feel truly cathartic. You just hope Portland realizes what it had in Uncle Cliffy and that team. There's no shame in losing, let alone to those guys. That was great. And and Vincent, you tweeted the other day about Cliff Robinson. What uh, what are your memories of him? Yeah, to offer analysis much less astute than Joel's. Um, <laughs> I, I just will always remember not only that Blazers team, but Cliff Robinson specifically, uh, because they taught me early on an alternate way of loving sports than just wins and losses. So I, I can actually remember the first time I ever watched basketball on my own. My my parents were not big. They were casual fans. They always were kind of up on things. They they liked Michael Jordan. They liked, you know, they they liked basketball, but it was not a big thing in my home. And I remember as a kid going into the living room by myself 
and turning on a basketball game for the first time. We lived in Chicago at this time. We had moved there because my dad, a musician, had gotten a job there. And I turned on basketball, and it was a Bulls home game, and it was against who I later learned were the Blazers. I didn't know anything except they had these cool black away jerseys, which I oh, still, yeah. to me, are, belong in the annals of great NBA dope? journeys. They're dope. Black jersey, red, white stripe yep. across the bottom, big graphic font across the, the, the chest. Lowercase, too. All lowercase, the Blazers. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, yes. yeah. That was, yeah. So they had that. Yes. Amazing. Just a cool jersey. And it was the, the classic first time watching on your own experience. I quickly learned just by watching this guy, Clyde Drexler. He has to be the best guy on their team. Just the way in. But there was this other guy, Cliff Robinson, who I noticed immediately because he had a headband. And, <laughs> and, and, and it was this a little flourish that actually harmonized really well with his game. As you mentioned, he, he, was, he could shoot, he could go in for a dunk, but all with this sort of live grace really tall really slim and just had all the style in the world as a basketball player a stylist both in dress with the headband (laughs) and on the court i later learned um during the 92 finals so you know i'm still I'm, i'm not even 10 years old i learned that cliff robinson was my dad's favorite player wow and i and i had no clue why he would be his favorite he wasn't the best on his team or among the two teams he just kind of liked his style. The, the musician liking the headband thing and yeah, exactly. the style. Yeah, uh-huh. a, a person who had devoted his life to, to style of a kind through music just liked the cut of this guy's jib. And, <laughs> that's, and, and you know, for, for many years after that, that's how I've tried to enjoy basketball. Yes, the greatest feats. Yes, the, the, the most intense moments. But just also liking the way somebody does something, right? And... Cliff Robinson was just cool, you know? He had he you never really saw him get too worked up in either direction. He was cool. And that's for me this is an archetype on a basketball team. There's just the cool guy. On on <laughs> on um on the Houston Rockets of today. Like PJ Tucker to me is just cool. He wears cool sneakers before the games and during the games. He too will go ahead and don a headband yeah, if 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 called to the occasion. You could you could do this in many other ways. Um so here's to the cool guy. Here's to Cliff Robinson. That's what's up. That that was great too, and I really like Cliff Robinson. I think there's like a secret society of Cliff Robinson fans, and maybe it's because he wasn't the best guy on the team. It's the fun. It's the really cool combination of not being the best guy, but also being a guy who could do everything mm. on the court. And like that's mm-hmm. kind of what you want. You're if you have a realistic view of your own athletic ability, you're like, I'm not going to be the star but I would like to be able to do everything mm. at every level of the game. The Rashid Wallace corollary. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the thing that was most surprising to me in reading, um, you know, the rundown of his accomplishments, including your rundown of his accomplishments, Joel, is that he made all defense team. Cause I, I would have never just in my memory, I would have been like, okay, he probably won six man of the year. He's a good shooter, all that. I had no recollection of him being a good defensive player. I would have thought he would have been a kind of all offense, no defense guy. But that's just <laughs> another testament to his uh, his versatility. Yeah, yeah. Well, he learned. He came up under Jim Calhoun, man. Like I don't think you can get on the floor unless you play defense for Jim Calhoun. <laughs> all right, Cliff Robinson, we remember you. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa the Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. 
Vincent Cunningham, thank you so much. It's great having you. Thank you. Always good to be here. For Vincent and for Joel Anderson, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.